We're going to get started in the book of James again this morning. And let me start here with some familiar slogans you maybe have grown up hearing. You only go around once in life, so go for the gusto. Ever thought of that slogan or something similar? What does it focus on? It focuses on you and right now. And it's marketing gold for advertisers. How about this? What happens here? Stays here. Shame on you for knowing that. (laughs) People actually believe that in Las Vegas. Because I'm worth it. Anyone know that one? L'Oreal, right? Just do it. Get your Nikes on. Have it your way right away. If you were to spend just a few minutes on some of the most popular slogans in the last 10 years, you would see a pattern. They want you to have all that you want to have it now and to have it just like you want it. And these slogans give us the perfect picture of our culture today, something that James has taken great strides to show us in this book, namely that individualism and self-indulgence is the theme of our world. As each year passes, even in our country, our country grows more and more litigious every year, more lawsuits. I read of a lawsuit from 2017. A woman in Illinois filed a lawsuit against the Chicago-based Tootsie Roll Industries over the packaging of a popular candy, Junior Mints. The woman claimed boxes of Junior Mints have almost as much air as candy, leading consumers to believe that they're getting more candy than is actually in the box. Her lawyer states that the label is misleading and now wants to represent everyone who buys Junior Mints in a class action lawsuit. So, I guess you should go buy Junior Mints. I mean, who's going to turn down a Junior Mint? Right? It's chocolate, it's peppermint, it's delicious. No one got that quote. Okay. (laughs) Sadly, though, as we see the world moving more and more this way, even churches go this way. The worship of God is in danger of being drowned out by the worship of self-esteem and felt needs. God will be worshiped only if he makes me feel better about myself. I will listen to God's word and obey it only if I feel like it or if I feel it will help me. And many have forgotten to look in the mirror of scriptures and respond to what they see, whether they like it or not. And James comes along here, friends, to warn us, to call us back from the precipice of those cultural norms and become more faithful to Jesus. And today is one of those passages. We've been journeying through this book for four months now, and we come to the last chapter. We come to a a jarring announcement to those that have placed their wealth only in this world and have discarded people. People who are made in the image of God, James says. And riches are a blessing of the Lord, as Solomon writes. He writes in Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth and he adds no trouble to it. But when wealth and the seeking of wealth is missing, from the, missing the Lord's blessing, trouble then comes in forms of envy and injustice and oppression and theft and murder and abuse and misuse. The love of money leads to all sorts of troubles, 1 Timothy 6 says. We should seek to serve the Lord not our bank accounts or the bottom line. Well, if you haven't already, turn with me to the book of James, chapter 5. And if you're 
new to us and you're new to the Bible, that's okay. We have Bibles provided there in the seats. It's on page 952 as you're looking there. And we're gonna be in chapter five and, and the chapter numbers are the, are the big numbers and the, the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. And we're gonna look at verses one through five here of James chapter five. And so if you don't have a Bible, you're gonna need one because that's what we're looking at this morning. And, and look with me as I read James five, one through five. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. And then verse six, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Before we launch in here, let me pray. I encourage you to pray for me as I preach, and I'll pray for you as you listen. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather together as the body of Christ here in Edgewood. And we ask that you would speak to your people seated here as we dive into the topic of materialism, placing earthly things above spiritual. God, I pray that you would give understanding to your people. May they know and understand what your word says. May they apply it to their lives and come away different than when they came in this morning. And we'll be sure to give you all the honor and glory. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. As you came in, you should have got a bulletin and an outline. And there's four points that I want to go through here. If you're not one that likes paper and you have the church app, it's listed in there, actually. The bulletin's in there and the outline's in there. If you want to do that digitally, um, feel free. Just make sure you're not surfing Facebook, all right? Stay with us here. Number one, who is materialistic? Who is materialistic? He says there in verse one, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. When James comes to chapter five, it seems as though he's, he's switching his audience. This is a letter written to the churches that are dispersed, but his language changes when we come to this first verse in chapter five. This is perhaps the most harsh of any language towards rich people that we can read in the New Testament. And James speaks as if he's an Old Testament prophet. The debate in the commentaries in which I read is whether he's writing to non-Christian landowners or to Christian landowners who have demonstrated they're not living as believers. And I'm here to tell you, I don't know. So there you go. Craig Bloomberg writes some strong points as to it being non-Christian landowners. He challenged us. He says, he speaks to non-Christians for the benefit of the Christian. That's a true statement. Even as it is for them, there's a warning for us. And as we've learned through this book, we need to lean into these warnings and not run from them. And James' words here fall like hammer blows, blunt and unsparing, and they should affect us all. Those that are rich, believers or unbelievers, they, they have a future that is bleak, he says. I tend to believe it's unbelievers, but we'll ask Jesus later. He says that they will weep and howl because of the future that awaits you. Weep and howl are shrieks of terror for what will happen. 
They will weep. They will wail. They will cry aloud for relief from their pain. It will be pure wretchedness, hardship, and pain that will come. There will be no relief. There will be no pause. It will be constant and sure. And this is what is promised to those that, that do not turn from their sin to trust in Christ. Impending disaster is coming, and the call in Scripture is to turn now to Jesus. I realize, though, as we come to a section of Scripture like this, that there may be some here seated that anytime sin is mentioned, that you're quite possibly quick to think that maybe you're not saved when in fact you are. Passages like this one might bring about two reactions. You, you might cringe or be comforted, depending on what you understand of the gospel. There are those of you here this morning that cringe when you read a passage like this because the moment you think that you've possibly sinned, you tend to believe that you're not a Christian. And I want to unpack that a little bit. If you think that you're not a Christian the minute you sin, that possibly shows that you really believe that you're saved only by being a good person. And friends, that's not the gospel. That's works salvation. The minute you stop being a good person, you might say, oh, maybe I'm not a Christian now. Oh no, what can I do? And that shows you haven't understood the grace part of the gospel. You don't understand that our God is a God of grace. And you're struggling to believe in grace. You understand law, but you don't understand grace. And it's legalism then. Because you lose your comfort the moment you sin. But there are also others that never lose their comfort when, when, when this passage is read. They, they never cringe. It doesn't matter what they've done in their life. They always point back to that prayer that they prayed when they were 10. Or they, they point to the, the directions that they followed by the preacher that day. Or, or the, I threw a stick in the fire back then. I gave my life to God back then. But they never lose their comfort no matter how much and how frequent they sin. No matter how much they disregard God. No matter how much they, they, they disregard prayer. They don't walk with Jesus. They go back to those moments and they trust in the moment instead of Jesus. They have forgotten the other side of the gospel, that God is a God of holiness. Why did Jesus die? Just to pardon you from your sin and let you live however you want? No, to save you from sin. Not just the consequences and the condemnation of sin, but also to turn you into a righteous and godly and holy and beautiful person. It doesn't happen overnight, but by God's grace, it happens. Some of you cringe and lose your comfort too quickly, so you need to be careful of the spirit of legalism that it still lingers in your heart. And some of you never lose your comfort no matter how you live, and you need to be careful of the spirit of depravity that still lingers in your heart. Both are dangers, and both are contrary to the gospel. For the one who doesn't trust in Christ, you can be sure of one thing. There will be a reckoning. Peter David writes, James looks with divine foresight and sees the dark hurricane cloud of the day of the Lord about to strike them down. Friends, time is short. Eternity is long. Live like it. And for the believer, this should encourage us to share. I know that there are those here this morning that either live with an unbeliever or you know one very well. And I want to ask graciously, when was the last time you shared the gospel with them? Are you praying for them regularly? Don't fall into the lie that you have all this time with them. Remember chapter 4. Don't be arrogant and evil in your view of time. 
Remember what James says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life for your mist that appears today and then vanishes? If you're a mist, then you're not promised tomorrow. And we need to fill up today with the opportunities to share the gospel and pray for those who desperately need to hear the gospel. And you need to share those needs with others. Don't just look at the church as an activity for Sunday. Look at us as a family. Stop looking at this as just something to check off the list. Look at it as, as a family. Share with us. We, we, we will rejoice with you. We will weep with you. We will pray for you. Don't neglect this amazing thing that Christ died for. So the rich are the ones here, the first one of the who that he's writing to. Secondly, the question is why? Why is it materialism? If you have Netflix and you pay attention to it at all, you might have heard about a popular series called Tidying Up by Marie Kondo, a Japanese organizer. Anyone heard about this? You're not missing anything, I don't think. But it became very popular, this lady going house to house to organize and help people tidy up things. I was okay to watch it until she said, you only need 30 books, and then I shut it off. <laughs> She's obviously of Satan. We need more books than that. <clears throat> I read an article on Thursday that said Goodwill has seen an almost 30% increase of donations since that show came on Netflix. And I'm praying that donations for Goodwill will increase after this morning. Because America has a problem with hoarding. Materialism defined in the dictionary is a tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual values. These rich people had basically put their possessions over people, James is saying. Look there at verse 2. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Does this sound familiar to any other New Testament passage? Perhaps in the Gospels with Jesus? Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither, neath, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just a warning to you, those that are visiting here this morning, if you haven't caught on yet, we're going to talk about money. And you may think, they always do this when we go to church. Well, when a church preaches through the Bible, we come to these passages because God has it placed here. And we come to these things. And we discussed this morning materialism and money because this is what God has for us this morning. And he writes to all of us. No one is exempt from this discussion. James is not saying that being rich is evil. He's not saying that having money and spending money is wrong. He's not saying that we should live as those who have nothing in a van down by the river. No, the Bible is not anti-money. The Bible is anti-hoarding. Saving is not sinful. Hoarding is. Being rich is not sinful. Keeping it all to yourself is. There are four types of wealth that he lists here in the text. He talks about riches and, and garments and gold and silver. These, first, these riches, their resources, their treasures, he says, will, will be gone. They won't last. And he might be picturing here, I believe, food, because they live in a Garian culture where you would acquire the food needed for the day, and there's no way to, to refrigerate that food overnight. 
And they've acquired so much that it just they waste it. It goes to waste. No one will eat it. It's gone. It's squandered. Not just food. That's not the only thing that perishes, but also garments, he says. They, they will be moth-eaten. There, there's something about clothes that causes them to be moth-eaten. Do you know what it is? Wearing them. That, that will battle against clothes being moth-eaten. It's a great way to combat that. But the problem is with us in America is that we have so many clothes. We can't wear them all. I mean, I guess you could wear them all. Look odd and we might point at you and be confused. Because these people have the same issue we do. If so much, they've lost track of it all. They've accumulated so much, they've... And he's saying, he's calling them out, saying, you've placed your treasure in your closets instead of heaven. They've also hoarded the last two are gold and silver. Last two items of wealth mentioned. He says that they have corroded or rusted. Now, this is very interesting because you might know that gold and silver don't rust. But James uses the verb to rust in the perfect tense, which means it is completely rusted or rusted right through. If you know anything about gold, it can withstand corrosion, it retains its metallic integrity for centuries. And although silver can tarnish on the surface, it lasts long in, in harsh environments. It doesn't rust all the way through. So, so James must be losing his mind, right? That's what's happening here. He doesn't understand how the world works. Well, he understands all right. He understands the world's point of view. From the world's vantage point, gold and silver will never be destroyed, right? Just buy gold. That's what everyone says, buy gold. But that's only one point of view. James now is speaking from God's point of view. And just because it hasn't rusted all the way through now doesn't mean it won't. James gives us the glimpse of the future that awaits those that have placed their hope in accumulation of gold and silver. And he says it will rust all the way through. It will be totally worthless on that last day. It won't mean anything. George Stulak rightly says, the rich will lose everything they have devoted themselves to and everything they have relied upon. Theirs will be the despair of people who discover their dreams and treasures are destroyed forever. Their riches, their clothes, their fine jewelry will be gone. Not only that, James says, these things will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. John MacArthur says in the judgment, their, their hoarded, rotted, moth-eaten, corroded treasures will give graphic testimony to the unregenerate state of their hearts. Their covetous, selfish, compassionless, earthbound approach to life will provoke their condemnation. James is showing us with graphic words, if the rich continue in their selfish pursuits in this life to find their satisfaction, it will eventually turn against them and condemn them in the end. It will speak against them. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not rich, this is your warning not to envy them. We shouldn't have the green-eyed monster towards what they have when it comes to wealth. Why? Because it says in verse 1, the unbelieving rich will weep and howl when they stand before God. Their stuff, all of their acquired wealth, will rot, it will lay in waste. 
the unbreakable jewelry that they thought would never rust will corrode right before their eyes. And all of this will be right before them and the judge as evidence against them. Their wealth will be evidence against their willful choices to worship stuff instead of worshiping God. And as they look and realize what they have done, it will eat their flesh away because they finally will understand that they sold their lives for a fleeting moment of pleasure. How should we respond? We should respond, we should fight against this tendency to hoard things in our life. This is the warning for us this morning. And we all have this tendency in different ways. It's a warning for us, friends, and praise God for his grace in your life for bringing you here this morning to have your eyes and your ears open to this truth. He is warning you against storing up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I ask, where is your heart? I mean, again, this is not a prohibition against having things. He's asking, where's your heart? I heard a story this week of a farmer who one day went with great joy to his, in his heart to report to his wife that their family, that their best cow had given birth to twin calves. And he said, you know, I have suddenly had a feeling that we must dedicate one of the calves to the Lord. We'll bring them up together, and when the time comes, we'll sell one and give the proceeds to the Lord's work. And the farmer's wife asked him what she was going to dedicate to the Lord. And he said, there's no need to bother about that now. He replied, we will treat them both in the same way. And when the time comes, we will do as I say. And off he went. And a few months later, the man entered his kitchen looking very miserable and unhappy. And the wife asked him what was troubling him. He answered, I've got bad news for you. The Lord's calf died. The tendency to hoard and to keep all that the Lord has given us is in each one of our hearts. And what circumstances have we met and have not tried to turn them into our own advantage, even at the expense of God himself? How many of us, when blessed with a boost of financial wealth, don't think first of the Lord and the work of the ministry, but instead we think of our own wants. That new car, that new toy. None of us are immune. And the question that Jesus asked in the gospel is, where is your treasure? Are we laying it up on earth to enjoy, or are we laying our treasures in heaven? See, our view of eternity will affect how we live today. And I have learned over the years, slowly, to view our earthly possessions like the tides of the sea. They come and they go. God has used trials in our lives, in our family's life, to teach us this lesson. You know, moving to Sweden, we packed up a large crate of all the earthly possessions we had. And 13 months later, we came back with 10 boxes. It seemed hard, but it really wasn't. You have too much stuff, you should move overseas for a year, okay? Because God's faithful, continuing to provide all that we need. Remember, friends, as Christians, we are God's money managers. The money you have is not really yours. 
it's the Lord's and he has placed you over stewarding what he's given you. And how are you doing stewarding the money that God has given you? You need to remind yourself. I need to remind myself all the time. You don't have the money you have because you're super important or super smart. All that we have is because of goodness of God. And he entrusts us with this to steward it for his glory. Randy Elkhorn, in his great little book, The Treasure Principle, says, he who lays up treasures on earth spends his life backing away from his treasure. To him, death is lost. And he who lays up treasures in heaven looks forward to eternity. He's moving daily towards his treasures. To him, death is gain. He who spends his life moving away from his treasures has reason to despair. He who spends his life moving toward his treasures has reasons to rejoice. Are you despairing or rejoicing? If you haven't studied what it looks like as a Christian to give, I want to encourage you to start with that book. In fact, I have a number of copies in the back. If you want a book, you can see me. I'd love to give it to you. It's a great resource. I read a number of years ago, Katie and I did, so that we can understand what it means to give. And and I want our church family to know where our treasures should be, not on earth, where it can be destroyed or stolen, but in heaven. And why? Because Jesus is coming back, right? Does anyone believe that anymore? That's what he says in the passage here. In the last days, James says, judgment day is coming. It's an interesting and extremely intriguing statement. These these people have too much concern for money and for their lifestyle now because their eschatology isn't straight. They've forgotten that Jesus is coming back. What's he saying, James? says, ultimately, the reason you're so concerned about money and the reason you're grasping about it and you're, you're actually not paying your bills to people, as he says later here, and you're stepping on people and you're concerned about money, you're worried about money. Why? Because you've forgotten the one who was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And he didn't resist. He voluntarily died for you. And you've forgotten what he's done. And you have forgotten that Jesus is coming back. We've had amnesia over this, that Jesus is coming back. And so you're caught up with the the rat race now now to acquire more and more and more and forgetting that this life will end at any moment. Don't you see how this is a warning for all of us here this morning? I encourage you not to run from obedience to the Lord with our wealth, but to lean into him in obedience as God leads. I mean, we have a kingdom first mindset with the wealth that God gives us. So he's seen the the who and the why. Third is the how. How do they show their materialism? Look at verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. James here is very specific in these two verses to the situations that I'm sure were very very prevalent in the churches to which he's writing. The rich landowners have acquired some of their wealth through dishonest actions towards those who they hired as day laborers. And their wages were being withheld by the rich landowners, and thus they were defrauding them of what was theirs. These day laborers were an essential part of Israel's economy, and withholding their wages was strictly prohibited in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.13 commanded the Israelites... 
You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. They are to pay. And this is a warning to those rich. James says, your wicked deeds of withholding their wages are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This statement is strong. Let me show you. He's, he's saying that your suffering as being defrauded by your employer has not fallen on deaf ears. God's arm isn't too short to do something about it. No, God hears. It literally says it has entered the ears of God. He knows exactly what you have suffered and he promises to answer. James calls him the Lord of hosts or the Lord of, of, of the Sabbath. It literally is the Lord of the armies is what he's saying. And it thrusts my mind back to 1 Samuel. As David stands before the Philistine giant Goliath and as Goliath mocks him and mocks his God, David responds, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Friends, this is the same language that James uses here. It's the same phrase, the Lord of hosts. It is our Lord, the holy warrior, the great warrior that you read about in Isaiah 5 or Exodus 15. If you've joined with us in the small group that we're reading through the Bible, we read Exodus 7 this morning, right? And, and later in Exodus 15, we get to the same phrase. Let me read it for you. This is the song of Moses. After God has answered and defeated Pharaoh, Another landowner who was defrauding his workers. He says this in verse one, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he can cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The Lord will reign forever and ever. God is the great warrior, and he is head of the armies. And he will bring disaster to those who oppress his people. James says, God knows, he sees, and he will answer. Friends, one sin leads to another, as we see it clearly in this passage. The sin of greed leads to hoarding, and that leads to cheating and stealing. Don't be surprised at the blinding arrogance of greed. This passage is here for the poor to comfort them and to remind them that God will not be mocked and he is not unaware of their suffering. The rich believe that nothing can stop them. They assume that because they had not seen God's judgment already that they will never see it and they are in the clear but that's an assumption about the future. We know assumptions are not good. They're foolish. 
just because you've never seen God do this before in the way you think, you begin to think that he never will. You think, I haven't seen God act this way in my life or, or the lives of my friends, therefore God can't do that. That's a foolish and wicked assumption. There's another story of a farmer who was a, a strong atheist who would take a strong delight every week in mowing his fields, plowing them during the church services on Sunday morning because he lived right across the street. So he would deliberately get on his tracker and in time and so, so the service would begin, he would be beginning, and he would mow and plow his field, plowing while there was a time of prayer, and as close to the church as he could go, plowing as they sang songs of worship, plowing as the, the word was preached. And the summer went by, and the harvest came in the fall, and this man was an outspoken atheist, and he decided that he would write a letter to the local newspaper in which he would triumphantly write all summer long while those fools were in church singing their songs and listening to some poor man dribble on. I was out there working my fields. God himself has not saw fit to punish me at all. In fact, while I was wisely doing the work, plowing my fields on Sunday and bringing a harvest, it has been my largest crop after all. I have brought in so much more crops than those poor saps who rested one day of the week. And he concluded his letter saying, what do you say to that? And the editor of the paper decided to print his letter in full the next day. And at the end of the letter, the article, he gave his response. God does not settle his accounts in October. God will bring judgment. If you're here and you're suffering in these same ways, you need to understand from the word of God that suffering has entered the ears of the Lord and he will act. And I want to be clear this morning. Maybe we need to write this down. God is better equipped to bring about judgment and revenge than you are. You need to remind it this morning that God loves justice. He is the author of justice. And we will be better served in our lives to leave this up to God and not ourselves. You would serve your heart very well by reminding yourself that you are not God and that he knows your injustice and he will deal with it in his time, which is always perfect. Our God is an eternal God. Our God is all-knowing. And just because God hasn't settled his accounts, either with them or with you, for all of your past sins, it doesn't mean that he won't. It doesn't mean that God has forgotten. It doesn't mean that God won't complete that. Your sins have not vanished. My sins have not vanished. But as a Christian, my sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We sang about that this morning. When God looks at me as a believer in Jesus Christ, he sees me in his son, not in my sins. So I ask, how does God view you this morning? Will you stand before God one day as judge or father? Only two options. 
And maybe you haven't lived your life in luxury and extravagance like the wealthy, but you've lived with no thought of God and his word, and thus you are no different, and the end will be the same as written here for the rich, weeping and howling for miseries that are coming upon you. Your life's pursuits, no matter how big or how small, will all rot, they will corrode, they will not last, and they will stand against you as evidence. God has seen, God has heard, and because God is perfectly just, he will answer. Friends, you will either stand before God as holy judge or holy father. And I want the second one for you. I want you to experience his fatherly goodness in your life. It's good. I want you to indulge in the goodness of God this morning. Don't settle for the passing pleasure of this world. It truly is vanishing, falling through your fingers faster than you can put it there. It won't last, friends, but God will. And in grace and love, he brought you here this morning to sit under the preaching of God's word and to be reminded again of who he is. I was reminded again this week, there will be a reckoning. Those that reject Jesus Christ will suffer. They will be filled with shame and remorse. They will see that they had been unfaithful stewards with their life. They will wail over the opportunities they've missed. They will mourn over the covetousness and selfishness. They will be convicted about their unfair employment practices if they have a business. They will see the sin of seeking security in and material things rather than the Lord, and they will shed hot tears over the way that they've indulged themselves to the full. And today is the day of salvation. Today is a day to turn from your selfish desires to satisfy yourself in this world and turn to Jesus Christ. You might not have more than this morning, my friend. God is patience, patient, but his patience is running out. And I would tell you, it would bring nothing but joy to myself and the rest of the pastors and elders to sit down and talk with you today. There's other members here that I could point you to also. If, if you have more in common with the rich listed here in this passage, you need to come find us today. We want to sit down and, and show you the gospel from God's word. Don't leave this morning without talking with us encourage you to do that. We'll be at the doors as you leave. Well, as we end here, we've seen the who, the why, and the how. And I'm not quite done yet, but this is the what. What their materialism does. The end of verse five, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Verse six, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. At the end of verse 5, like cattle who, who eat more than their share of grain, not aware that they're only making the final judgment of slaughter more fitting, the rich fatten their hearts on the temporary wealth. Remember, the Bible never, never censures riches, but those who live for the pleasure in this world will suffer in the next life. And in vivid language, he depicts the self-indulgent hoarders as fattened calves headed for the slaughterhouse of divine judgment. And apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, that is the reality that awaits them. 
Then in verse six, he says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And James is referring to those that are being mistreated. They're the the righteous believers continuing to allow those above them to mistreat them. And the implication here is that the wicked rich were using the courts to judicially murder some of the abused poor are taking away what they have, which ended their life, essentially. They take advantage of the poor because of the resources. Not only have stolen from them by not paying their wages, but they have taken further advantage by using their wealth unfairly. If wealth is to be a source of blessing and not condemnation, it must not be uselessly hoarded, unjustly gained, self-indulgently spent, or ruthlessly acquired. And friends, this passage is a warning to us. Do you see yourself in any of the descriptions of the worldly wealthy in these verses this morning? This text helps us fight the ungodly way to look at wealth and abundance. And this passage should deflate the temptation to hoard earthly things. It should inspire grace-infused generosity for us as Christians. This passage should cause us to ask some questions. Am I, are my purchases motivated by a self-indulgent luxury? You know, I didn't touch on this in great depth, but I'll leave it to you to study this week. But 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 is a good passage to spend some time thinking through. And they give you some guidelines because it really does. It lays it out, some, some guidelines for how we should spend your money. It should be, money should be there to meet our needs for housing and clothing and food. And he says it should be there to be enjoyed. It's not a bad thing. God wants us to enjoy his bountiful and good gifts. So eat a steak for the glory of God, okay? Go on vacation. He's not saying don't do those things. He's talking to your heart. He's not condemning nice things. He's always talking about the motivation behind it. Why? And the last way that 1 Timothy 6 is is talking about how we are to be generous to others. First to the Lord and then to others that God sends to our path. You see, the problem is never that we have money. The problem is that people begin to love money. God had many men in scripture that were rich. Really, really rich. Abraham, Joseph, Job, David, Solomon. They were rich. Great good can be done for the spread of the gospel because of great wealth. And he gives it to you, so he's entrusting you to steward it well. Let me ask you another question. Are you just accumulating stuff? Are you hoarding? See, God is not condemning having all that we need or even having nice things. It's just a way of asking the question of a self-evaluation. You need to spend some time with the Lord, with your family, discussing this. Are we just after accumulating more things? Let me ask you another question. Do you give consistently and cheerfully and generously to advance the gospel in the church and throughout the world? Do you know that you should give as a Christian? Our giving is a, a reflex response to the grace of God that he's given to us. We give back because we recognize all that he's given us. And so do accordingly. You know, as as believers, the way we fight the temptation to hoard and to be greedy is to give and to give generously with joy and love. 
And generosity should be a distinctive of those who serve a wildly generous God. We should be known that way. So this week, I want you to spend time thinking through this. How can I be generous this week with others? Ask before you buy. Is this self-indulgent? Am I I consistently laying up treasure in heaven rather than on earth? These are questions you need to ask. Ask this between your family. Spend time before the Lord. Now, I recognize as, as I end, some of you here this morning come in and aren't dealing with rich people that are oppressing you this week. Maybe the issues that you're facing this week are far from that. And yet there's something here for you. You know, there should always be an encouragement of the gospel whenever we gather as the church. I mean, that's, that's why we're here, isn't it? Alec Mater writes of this passage. He says, it is in fact surely impossible to read the words, killed the righteous man he does not resist without the lone and wonderful figure of the Lord Jesus coming before our eyes of the mind. He is preeminently the righteous one his response of non-resistance as that one and at the same time the most demanding example and sweetest consolation in the time of oppression. As I was studying this, I'm recognizing he's writing to these people, but my mind was racing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Does yours? It says in verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Boy, I raced to Isaiah 53. Let me read and you can listen. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid, hide their faces, he was despised and he, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the Lord. This reminds me of him. This is the gospel for us. He was falsely accused. He was slandered. He was rejected by men. He experienced deep grief, beaten, bruised, defrauded by those he came to save. And yet he opened not his mouth. He became the lamb of God in our place. And this lamb, this lamb 
is coming back again. And we're going to sing about that here as we end our time this morning. Because no matter what you're facing today, as a Christian, you live with the hope that Jesus is coming back to make all things new. Revelation 9, or 5, excuse me. Actually, turn to it. Because I want you to read it with me out loud. Revelation 5 and verse 9. And they sing... Actually, I'm going I'm to read all together. Why don't you stand with me as we do this, all right? Do my best to lead you here. Let's read it together. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. Father, we thank you that we can read this with confidence, knowing that you are coming back, Father, we thank you that we can now sing together as the body of Christ with hope, knowing that you hear our songs. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.